Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 301 of Forgotten Classics, where we are reading Talents Incorporated by Murray Leinster, read for us by Mark Nelson at LibriVox. Usually, I would have a podcast highlight right now that highlights an entire podcast, but I have not discovered anything brand new that I really love. So here are two episodes of podcasts I love that I've found thought-provoking, interesting, inspiring, and kind of a knockout. The first is from 99% Invisible. It is called Green Book. It's fairly recent, so it will be easy to find. And it brings up if you were black in the Jim Crow era and had to travel a long distance, what did you do? Well, it turns out you turned to your green book, and that story is fascinating. So listen to that. The other one is called K Paparazzi, <laughs> and it is from Radiolab. It's about, well, you know, K pop, which is their music, but it's about how the Korean culture kind of shapes itself and is formed for popular culture in a way, and how it is like us and not like us. I don't know really how to describe it, except to say, be sure you listen past the first maybe 10 minutes or so. It sounds like a very ordinary story at that point. But when it really gets nuts, is when the concept of black ocean is brought up. I love black ocean so much that we're now using that term around the house. So be sure you listen to that. Both are great episodes of their shows, very representative of the best they can achieve. And even the stuff I don't love so much is usually quite good. So give those a try. I'll have, of course, links, but it's easy to find them in iTunes if you want, just on your own. Now let's get back to Talents Incorporated. I thought this was interesting because we got to see the way that Boars reacted to defeating two different Meekin ships, but they were the circumstances that, of course, informed how he felt about them. And I don't know if I really necessarily understood the one he felt bad about. To me, that was <laughs> pretty much the same as the other one. It was a warship. It was out to get him, you know, but maybe that's just how I understood it. I also loved the fact that Bors took this almost perverse satisfaction when he was shipwrecked. So it would take them 80 years to get to the nearest planet and his perverse satisfaction in thinking, oh, Talents Inc. can't help me out now. Well, of course he was wrong because you can depend on Talents Incorporated information Although I loved the talent that made them come back and take a different look. The woman who could tell how people were feeling. What an innovative way to use that talent. I also find it interesting that in this book, Murray Leinster just drops these little philosophical gems into each chapter of, here's how things are. For instance, increasing civilization takes the fun out of life. 
because everything is so much more certain. And that's why people get bored in this warp drive sort of thing that they can do as opposed to if they were out in the real space where anything could happen. I think he's right, but I hadn't really thought about it in the terms that he describes it. And then this is, of course, a much more current thing that we've been thinking about, which is, does lowering yourself to beat the enemy on his own terms, because maybe that's the only way you can do it, does it change you? If you're honorable and they aren't, and you're having to fight by what you would consider dishonorable terms, does that make you into someone else? I myself feel that it could be a struggle, but if you are properly, how do I say, grounded and have the right internal look at it, it may change you some, but it's not going to change you overall. It's not going to change how you act. You may be upset because you weren't acting in this honorable way under these circumstances, but you will go back to how you were acting when it's not necessary anymore, and you will continue to uphold those high standards. I think you can look at it in terms of World War II. You know, we had to get our hands dirty. We had to get in there and fight and do things that we in peacetime would never condone. But as everybody saw it at the time, those were the decisions that had to be made for victory to stop the fighting. In a sense, it's kind of like Sherman, who burned all that countryside on his march to Atlanta. He didn't like doing it, but he wanted to stop the war. And that was the only way he could see to do it. However, afterwards, and I'm not talking about Sherman, I'm back to World War II now, we went in there and helped everybody get back on their feet. We treated the German and Japanese people with kindness as much as we could, with aid, with education, with restoration. So, you know, none of these things are perfect. This is a super simplistic way to look at it. But this is the question that Murray Leinster is bringing up in Talents Incorporated. So it's worth thinking about. So now that Gwendolyn and Talons Incorporated have rescued Boers and his ship and his ship has been destroyed, they're going to head for Glamis, which was the first place they went to as pirates. And she said, well, it should have changed a great deal. And Boers said it would be my kind of luck to have changed for the worse. Well, guess what? King Humphrey is involved and the council. So, yeah, we're not going to have good times, at least at the beginning. Let's dive in and find out what's going on. Talents Incorporated, Chapter 9 The decision, said King Humphrey VIII stubbornly, is exactly what I have said. In full war council it has been agreed that the fleet, through a new use of missiles, is a stronger fighting force than ever before. This was evidenced in the late battle, and no one questions it. But it is also agreed that we remain hopelessly outnumbered. We are in a position where we simply cannot fight. For us to have fought would probably have been forgiven if we had been wiped out in the recent battle, preferably with only slight loss to the Beaconese. We offered battle expecting exactly that. Unfortunately, we annihilated the fleet that was to have occupied Kandar. In consequence, 
we have had to pretend that we were destroyed along with them. And if we are discovered to be alive, and certainly if we offer to fight, Kandar will be exterminated as a living world, to punish us and as a warning to future victims of the Mekanese. Yes, Majesty, Bohr said through tight lips, but may I point out— I know what you want to point out, the king broke in irritably. With the help of these talents incorporated people, you've worked out a new battle tactic you want to put into practice. You've explained it to the War Council. The War Council has decided that it is too risky. We cannot gamble the lives of the people on Kandar. We have not the right to expose them to Mekanese vengeance. I agree, Majesty, said Bors, but at the same time, the king leaned back in his chair. I don't like it any better than you do, he said peevishly. I expected to get killed in a space battle, not very gloriously, but at least with self-respect. Unfortunately, we had bad luck. We won the fight. I do not like what we have to do in consequence, but we have to do it. Bors bit his lips. He liked and respected King Humphrey, as he had respect and affection for his uncle, the pretender of Tralee. Both were honest and able men, who had been forced to learn the disheartening lesson that some things are impossible. But Bors believed that King Humphrey had learned the lesson too well. "'Your plan, Majesty,' he said after a moment, "'to send me out again to capture food ships if I can.' "'Obviously,' said the king. "'The idea being,' Bors went on, "'that if I can get enough food for the fleet "'so it can make a journey of several hundreds of light-years, "'it is necessary to go a long way,' the king confirmed unhappily. "'We need to take the fleet to where Meekin is only a name.' and Kandar not even that. Where you will disband the fleet. Yes. And hope that Meekin will not take vengeance anyhow for the fight the fleet has already put up. The king said heavily, It will be a very long time before word drifts back that the fleet of Kandar did not die in battle. It may never come. If it does, it will come as a vague rumor, as an idle tale, as absurd gossip about a fleet whose home planet may not even be remembered when the tales are told. There will be trivial stories about a fleet which abandoned the world it should have defended, and fled so far that its enemies did not bother to follow. If the tale reaches Meekin, it may not be believed. It may not ever be linked to Kandar. And if some day it is believed, by then, Kandar will be long occupied. Perhaps it will be resigned to its status. It will be a valuable subject world. Meekin will not destroy it merely to punish scattered, forgotten men who will never know that they have been punished. And you want me, repeated Bors, to find the stores of food that will let the fleet travel to oblivion. "'Yes,' said the king again. He looked very weary. "'In a sense, of course, we will simply be doing what we set out to do, 
to throw away our lives. We intended to do that. We are doing no more now." Bohr said grimly, "'I'm not sure. But I will obey orders, Majesty. Do you object if I pass out the details of the new device among some junior officers? I speak of the way to compute overdrive speed exactly, and how to vary it. It could help the fleet to stay together, even in overdrive.' The king shrugged. "'That would be desirable. I do not object.' "'I'll do it, then, Majesty,' said Bors. "'I'll be assigned a new ship. I'd like the same crew. I'll do my best in a new part of the Mekinese Empire this time.' "'Yes,' said the king drearily. "'Don't make a pattern of raids that would suggest that you have a base. You understand, it is impossible to use more than one ship.' Naturally, agreed Bors. One more suggestion, Majesty. A ship could be sent back to Kandar, not to land, but to watch. If a single Mekinese ship went there to ask questions, it could be destroyed, perhaps, which would gain us time. I will think about it, said the king doubtfully. Maybe it has occurred to someone else. I will see. Meantime, you will go to the Admiral for a new ship, and then do what you can to find provisions for the fleet. It is not good for us to merely stay here waiting for nothing. Even action toward our own disappearance is preferable." Boris saluted. He went to the office of the Admiral. The commander-in-chief of the Kandarian fleet was making an inspection to maintain tight discipline in the absence of hope. A young vice-admiral was on duty in the admiral's stead. He regarded Bors with approval. He listened with attention, and agreed with most of what Bors had to say. "'I'll push the idea of a sentry over Kandar,' he said confidentially. "'I'll make it two ships or three, and take command. I want to send some of my engineer officers to get the details of that low-power overdrive. A very pretty tactical idea.' It should be spread throughout the fleet. It will help, Bors said with irony. When we go so far away, that we'll never be heard of any more. Eh? The vice-admiral looked at him blankly. Oh, perhaps. You wouldn't be likely to pick up a cargo ship loaded with Mekinese missiles, would you? We could adapt them to our use. If I did, Bors answered. I suspect that somehow that ship would land itself on Meekin and blow up as it touched ground." The vice-admiral raised his eyebrows. Bors saluted quickly and left. Presently he was back on the Silva. His new command would be supplied with extra missiles from other ships. Despite the fleet action against the Mekinese, there was not yet a shortage of such ammunition. When a missile could not be intercepted, and itself did not try to intercept, the economy of missiles was great. In the battle of the gas-giant planet, the fleet had fired no more than three or four missiles for every enemy ship destroyed. Morgan took Bors aside. "'I'm going to keep Logan here this trip. I'm working on the commanders. I need him. And our talent for detecting lies—she was the one who knew you were in trouble.' Gwenlin tells me, is very necessary. I was hampered by not having her while Gwenlin was away. 
but she did a good job for you." Bohr shrugged. He did not like depending upon talents. He still wasn't inclined toward acceptance of what he considered the occult. Now, he said, I'm duly grateful, but it's just as well. My mind doesn't work in a way to understand these talents of yours. I admit everything, but I'm afraid I don't really accept anything. It's perfectly reasonable, protested Morgan. The facts fit together. I'm no hand at working out theories. I deal in facts. But the facts do make sense. Bors found himself looking at the door of the family room where Morgan had taken him. He recognized that he was waiting for Gwendolyn to enter. He turned back to Morgan. "'They don't make sense to me,' he said dourly. "'You have a precognizer, you say. He foresees the future. I admit that he has. But the future is uncertain. It can't be foreseen unless it's preordained. And in that case, we're only puppets imagining that we're free agents.' but there would be no reason in such a state of things." Morgan settled himself luxuriously in a self-adjusting chair. He thrust a cigar on Bors and lighted up zestfully. "'I've been waiting to spout about that,' he observed, "'even though I'm no theoretician. Look here. What is true? What is truth? What's the difference between a false statement and a true one?' Bors' eyes wandered to the door again. He drew them back. "'One so, and the other isn't,' he said. "'No,' said Morgan. "'Truth is an accordance, an agreement, between an idea and a fact. If I toss a coin, I can make two statements. I can say, it will come up heads, or I can say, that it will come up tails. One sentence is true, and one is false.' A precognizer simply knows which statement is true. I don't, but he does." "'It's still prophecy,' objected Bors. "'Oh, no!' protested Morgan. "'A precognizer talent doesn't prophesy. All he can do is recognize that an idea he has now matches an event that will happen presently. He can't extract ideas from the future.' He can only judge the truth or falsity of ideas that occur to him. He has to think something before he can know it is true. He does not get information from the future. He can only know that the idea he has now matches something that will happen later. He can detect a matching, an agreement. Perhaps it's a mental vibration of some sort. But that's all. I asked if I would capture a cargo ship on Tralee, and I said I didn't know. Of course I said so. How could anybody know such a thing except by pure accident? A precognizer might think of 999 ways in which you might try to capture that ship. They could all be wrong. He might say you wouldn't capture it. But you might try a thousandth way that he hadn't thought of. All he can know is that some idea he has concocted matches, some instinct stirs, and he knows it's true. That's why one man can precognize dirty tricks. His mind works that way. We've got a woman who knows, infallibly, who's going to marry whom. 
That's why the ship arrival precognizer can say a ship's coming in. His mind works on such things, and he has a talent besides. There are definite limits, then. What is there that's real and hasn't limits? demanded Morgan. The door opened, and Gwenlin came in. Bors rose, looking pleased. "'I'm telling him the facts of life about precognition,' Morgan told her. "'I think he understands now.' "'I don't agree,' said Bors. Gwenlin said amusedly, "'Two of our talents want to talk to you, Captain. You might say that they want to measure you for rumors.' "'They what?' demanded Bors, startled. The talent who predicts dirty tricks, said Gwenlin, is going to work with the woman who broadcasts daydreams. They'll be our department of propaganda. Bors said uncertainly, But there's no point in propaganda. It's determined. I know, said Morgan complacently. The high brass has made a decision. A perfectly logical decision, too, once you grant their premises— but they assume that Talents Incorporated, given some cooperation, of course, lacks the ability to change the situation. In that, they're mistaken. Father hopes, said Gwenlin amiably, to modify the situation so their assumptions will lead logically to a different conclusion. Apparently, they're going to change their minds. Bors objected. But you can't know the future. Our precognizer, our precognizer for special events, said Gwenlin, got the notion that a year from now King Humphrey should open Parliament on Kandar if everything is straightened out. The notion became a precognition. We don't know how it can come about, but it does seem to imply a change of plan somewhere. Bors found himself indomitably skeptical, but he said, Ah, that's the precognition you mentioned on Kandar, that the fleet wouldn't be wiped out and everybody killed. No, said Gwenlin, that was another one. I'd rather not tell you about it. It might be unpleasant. I'll tell you later. Bors shrugged. All right, you said I'm to be measured for rumors. Bring on your tape measures. Morgan beamed at him. Gwenlin went to the door and opened it. An enormously fat woman came in, moving somehow sinuously in spite of her bulk. She gave Bors a glance he could not fathom. It was sentimental, languishing and holy and utterly approving. He felt a momentary appalled suspicion which he dismissed in something close to panic. It couldn't be that he was fated. Then the arrogant man with rings came in, He'd been identified as the talent for predicting dirty tricks. Bors remembered that he had a paranoid personality, inclined toward infinite suspiciousness, and that he'd been in jail for predicting crimes that were later committed. "'Gwenlin says propaganda,' said Morgan. "'But I prefer to think of these two talents as our department for disseminating truthful, seditious rumors. "'You've met harms,' The man waved his hand, his rings glittering. "'But I didn't tell you about Madame Porvis. She has the extraordinary talent of contagious fantasy. It is remarkably rare. 
She can daydream, and others contract her dreamings, as if they were spread by germs. The fat woman bridled. She still regarded Bors with a melting gaze. Again he felt a startled unease. "'It's been a great trial to me,' she said in a peculiarly childish voice. "'I had such trouble before I knew what it was.' "'Er, trial?' asked Bors apprehensively. "'When I was just an overweight adolescent,' she told him archly, "'I daydreamed about my school's best athlete. "'Presently I found that my shocked fellow-students "'were gossiping to each other that he'd acted as I daydreamed. "'Other girls would look at him because they said "'he was madly in love with me.' The arrogant man with the rings made a scornful sound. "'He hated me,' said Madame Porvis ruefully, "'because the gossip made him ridiculous, and it was only people picking up my daydreams.' She looked at Morgan. He nodded encouragement. "'Years later,' she said to Bors, "'I grew romantic about an actor. He was not at all talented.' but I daydreamed that he was, and also brilliant and worshipped by millions. Soon everybody seemed to believe it was true, because I daydreamed it. He was given tremendous contracts, and then I dared to daydream that he met and was fascinated by me. Immediately there was gossip that it had happened." When he denied that he knew me, and he didn't, and when he saw my picture and said he didn't want to, I was crushed. I wove beautifully tragic fantasies about myself as pining away and dying because of his cruelty, and soon it was common gossip that I had. She sighed. He was considered a villain because I daydreamed of him that way. His career was ruined. I've had to be very careful about my daydreams ever since. Madame Porvis's talent, Morgan said proudly, is all the more remarkable because she realized herself that she had it. She lets ideas pop into her head, and presently they pop into other people's heads, and you have first-class rumors running madly about. When her fantasies contain elements of truth, so do the rumors, you see— "'It's most interesting,' admitted Bors. "'But—' "'Now, Harms,' said Morgan, "'reads news reports. "'He specialized on those brought back by Gwenlin and by you. "'He guesses at the news behind the news, "'and he knows when he's hit it. "'He'll tell Madame Porvis the facts, "'she'll weave them into a fantasy, "'and they'll spread like wildfire. "'Of course,' She can't plant new subjects in people's minds. But anybody who's ever heard of Meekin will pick up her fantasies about graft and inefficiency in its government, riots against Meekin, and so on. However, one wants not only to spread seditious rumors about villains, but also about, say, pirates who go about fighting Meekin. Tell her stories about your men if you like. "'anything that's material for heroic, defiance fantasies against Meekin.' "'Bors found himself stubbornly resisting the idea. 
It might be that there was such a thing as precognition in the form Morgan had described. There might be such a thing as contagious fantasy. But, on the other hand— "'I give up,' he said. "'I won't deny it, and I can't believe it. I'll go about my business of piracy. But you, sir,' he turned to Morgan, "'you've got to keep Gwenlyn from taking risks.' "'True,' said Morgan. "'She could have some very unpleasant experiences. I'll be more stern with her.' Gwenlyn did not seem alarmed. "'One more thing,' Bors added. They say the dictator of Meekin is superstitious, that he patronizes fortune-tellers. Suppose one of them is a talent. Suppose he gets precognized information. I worry about that, admitted Morgan. But I know that I have effective talents. There's no evidence that he has. He might have a talent whose talent is confusing our talents. Bors said with some sarcasm. Morgan grinned tolerantly. "'Talk to these two. We've got some firm precognitions that make things look bad for Meekin.' He left the room. Gwenlyn remained, listening with interest when the conversation began, and now and then saying something of no great importance. But her presence kept Bors from feeling altogether like a fool. Madame Porvis looked at him with languishing, sentimental eyes. Harms watched him accusingly. Their questions were trivial. Bors told about the landings on Tralee and on Garin. The woman asked for details that would help her picture feats of daring-do. Bors hesitated, and did not quite tell her about the truck-drivers on Tralee, who volunteered the information that their loads were booby-trapped. But he did stress the fact that the populations of dominated planets were on the thin edge of revolt. The suspicious talent asked very little. He listened, frowning. When it was over and they'd gone, the fat woman again somehow managing a gait which could only be called sinuous, Bohr said abruptly, "'What's this event you know of a year ahead?' "'King Humphrey opening Parliament on Kandar.' said Gwenlyn pleasantly. "'There's another,' said Bors, "'which implies, specifically, that I'll still be alive.' "'That,' said Gwenlyn, "'that's another one. I won't talk about it. It implies that my father's going to retire from Talents Incorporated.' Bors fumed. "'I don't like this prediction business,' he said. "'It still seems to hint that we're not free agents.' "'Tell me,' he said apprehensively, "'that precognition about me. It doesn't include Madame Porvis.' Gwenlyn laughed. "'No, definitely no,' Bors grunted. Then he managed to grin. "'In that case, I'll go pilfer some provision so the fleet will be prepared to do what you tell me it won't, but which it has to be prepared to do. I suppose I'll be back?' "'I suppose so,' said Gwenlyn, smiling. She gave him her hand. He left. He shook his head as he made his way to the Silva's spaceboat blister. He had it immediately taken to his new ship. It was a light cruiser of the same class as the Isis. It would, of course, seem to be the same ship, and it had nearly the same crew aboard. 
No one of Morgan's freakish talents was included this time, and Bors felt more than a little relieved. He inspected everything and made sure his drive engineers were more tractable than they'd been on the Isis. He meant to build another low-power overdrive at once. He cleared for departure with the flagship. He was swinging the ship toward his first destination when a call came from the Silva. He was asked for. He went to a screen. He preferred to see Gwenlin when he talked to her. She was there. "'I've a memo for you,' she said briskly. "'There are cargo ships aground on Cassus and Dover. There is a sort of patrol squadron of warships aground on Meriden. Nothing on Avino. Are you recording this?' "'I won't forget it,' he said. Then here's the situation on each of the subject worlds so far as cargo ships and fighting ships are concerned. Our dowser can tell about them. Remember, this doesn't apply to ships in overdrive. We can't precognize anything about them unless we're at the destination they're heading for, and then only the time of arrival. And the dowser's information is strictly as of this moment. Bors nodded. Her tone was absolutely matter-of-fact. Bors was almost convinced. She read off a list of statements with painstaking clarity. She'd evidently had the dowser go over the list of twenty-two dominated planets. Bors told himself that the events she reported were possibilities that might somehow be true. "'Most of the Meekinese Grand Fleet,' she finished, "'is aground on Meekin itself. It's probably there for inspection and review or some such ceremony.' There's no way to tell. But it's there. And that's the latest Talents Incorporated information. As my father says, you can depend on it. All right, said Bors. Thanks. Then he added gruffly, Take care of yourself. She smiled at him and clicked off. Bors was confused because he couldn't quite believe that other matters could be predicted. The new ship, the Horus, sped away in overdrive, leaving the fleet in orbit around the useless planet Glamis. Glamis was in a favorable state just now. It was a lush green, almost from pole to pole, save where its seas showed a darker, muddy bottom color. It would look inviting to colonists. But at any time its sun could demonstrate its variability and turn it into a cloud-covered world of steaming, prospective jungle, or in a slightly shorter time turn it to a glacier world. The vegetation on Glamis was remarkable. The planet, though, was of no use to humanity because it was unpredictable. The Horus ran in overdrive for two days while a low-power unit was built in its engine room to go in parallel to the normal overdrive. But there was a double-throw switch in the line now. Either the standard, multiple-light-speed overdrive could be used, or the newer and vastly slower one, but not both together. The ship came out of overdrive in absolute emptiness, with no sun anywhere nearby. She was surrounded on every hand by uncountable distant stars. The new circuit was brazed in. It had a micro-timer included in its design. With its certain, limited timing capacity, it could establish or break a contact within the thousandth of a microsecond. Bohr's made tests, target practice of a sort. 
he let out a metal foil balloon which inflated itself, making a sphere some forty feet in diameter. In the new low-speed overdrive he drew away from it for a limited number of microseconds. He measured the distance run. He made other runs, again measuring. From ten thousand miles away he made a return hop to the target balloon and came out within a mile of it. He cheered up. This was remarkably accurate. He sent the ship into standard overdrive again. Twice more, however, he stopped between stars and practiced the trick of breaking out of the new overdrive in which his ship was undetectable at a predetermined point. The satisfaction of successful operation almost made up for the extremely disagreeable sensations involved. But on the eighth ship day out from Glamis, the Horus came back to unstressed space with a very, very bright star burning almost straight ahead. The spectroscope confirmed that it was the sun of Meriden. Bors sounded the action alert. Gongs clanged. Compartment doors hissed shut. "'You know,' said Bors conversationally into the all-speaker microphone and in the cushioned stillness which obtained, "'You all know what we're aiming at, a food supply for the fleet. But we've got what looks like a very useful gadget for fighting purposes.' We need to test it. There's a small squadron on Meriden ahead, so we'll take them on. It is necessary that we get all of them, so they can't report anything to Meekin that Meekin doesn't already know. All hands ready for action. In twenty minutes by the ship's clocks, the Horus was a bare thirty thousand miles off the planet Meriden. The new drive worked perfectly for planetary approach, at any rate. It even worked more perfectly than the twenty-minute interval implied. It had been off Meriden for five minutes then. Meekinese fighting ships were boiling up from the atmosphere of Meriden and plunging out to space to offer battle. They were surprisingly ready, reacting like hair-triggered weapons. Bors hadn't completed his challenge before they were streaking toward Meriden's sky. They couldn't have been more prompt if, say, Meriden seethed with rumors about a pirate ship in space, which it was their obligation to fight. According to the radar screens, there were not less than fifteen ships streaking out to destroy the Horus. Fifteen to one. Interesting odds. Bors sent the Horus roaring ahead to meet them. Chapter 10 The Meganese did not display a sporting spirit. There were four heavy cruisers and eleven lighter ships of the Horus's size and armament. According to current theories of space battle tactics, two of the light cruisers should have disposed of the Horus with ease and dispatch. It might have seemed sportsmanlike and certainly sufficient to give the Horus only two antagonists at a time, which would have been calculated to provide odds of six hundred to one against it. Two light cruisers would have fired eighteen missiles apiece per salvo, which would have demanded thirty-six missiles from the Horus to meet and destroy them. She couldn't put thirty-six missiles into space at one firing. She would have disappeared in atomic flame at the first exchange of fire. But the Meganese were not so generous. They came up in full force loaded for bear. They obviously intended not a fight, but an execution. 
Mekinese tactics depended heavily on firepower of such superiority that any enemy was simply overwhelmed. Their maneuvering proved that they intended to follow standard operation procedure. Light ships reached space and delayed until all were aloft. They formed themselves into a precise half-globe and plunged at top solar system drive toward the Horus. This was strictly according to the book. If the Horus chose, of course, she could refuse battle by fleeing into overdrive, which would be expected to be the regulation many times faster than light variety. If she dared fight, the fifteen ships drove on. Mekinese ships never struck lightly. The fifteen of them could launch four hundred missiles per salvo. No single ship could counter such an attack. But even Mekinese would not use such stupendous numbers of missiles against one ship unless that ship was famous, unless rumors and reports said that it was invincible and dangerous and the hope of oppressed peoples under Mekin. The Horus received very special attention. Then she vanished. At one instant she was in full career toward the fleet of enemies. The next instant she had wrapped an overdrive field about herself, and then no radar could detect her, nor could any missile penetrate her protection. When she vanished, the speck which indicated her position disappeared from the Mekinese radar screens. The hundredth of a second in overdrive, as known to the Mekinese, should have put her hundreds of millions of miles away. But something new had been added to the Horus. The hundredth of a second did not mean millions of miles journeying. It meant something under three thousand, and a much more precise interval of time could be measured and used by her micro-timer. Therefore, at one instant, the Horus was some two thousand miles from the lip of the half-globe of enemy ships. Then she was not anywhere. Then, before the mind could grasp the fact of her vanishing, she was in the very center, the exact focus of the formation of Mekinese battlecraft. She was at the spot a Mekinese commander would most devoutly wish, because it was equidistant from all his ships, and all their missiles should arrive at the same instant when their overwhelming number could not conceivably be parried. But it was more than an ideal position from a Mekinese standpoint. It was also a point which was ideal for the Horus, because all her missiles would arrive at the encircling ships at the same instant. Each Mekinese would separately learn, without information from any other, that those projectiles could not be intercepted. No Mekinese would have the advantage of watching the tactic practiced on a companion ship, to guide his own actions. The Horus appeared at that utterly vulnerable and wholly advantageous position. She showed on the Mekinese screens. They launched missiles. The Horus launched missiles. The Horus disappeared. She reappeared, beyond and behind the half-globe formation. Again she showed on the Mekinese screens. The Mekinese could not believe their instruments. A ship which fled in overdrive could not reappear like this. Having vanished and reappeared once, it could not duplicate the trick. Having duplicated it, this was more, and worse. The Horus missiles were not being intercepted. Mekinese's missiles were swerving crazily to try to anticipate and destroy the curving, impossibly moving objects that went out from where the Horus had ceased to be. They failed. Clouds of new trajectiles appeared. 
a flare like a temporary sun, another, another, others. Bors turned from the viewport and glanced at the radar screens. There were thirteen vaporous glowings where ships had been. There were two distinct blips remaining. It could be guessed that some targets had been fired on by more than one launching tube, leaving two ships unattacked by the Horus's missiles. Both of those ships, one a heavy cruiser, now desperately flung the contents of their magazines at the Horus. Bors heard his voice snapping coordinates. "'Launch all missiles at those two targets,' he commanded. "'Fire! Overdrive coming! Five, four, three, two. The intolerable discomfort of entry and immediate breakout from overdrive was ever-present. But the Horus had shifted position five thousand miles. Bors saw one of his just-launched missiles, now a continent away, as it went off. It accounted for one of the two Mekanese survivors. The radar blip which told of that ship's existence changed to the vaguely vaporous glow of incandescent gas. The other blip went out. No flare of a bomb. Nothing. It went out. So, the last Mekanese ship was gone in overdrive. It was safe. It could not possibly be overtaken or attacked. It had seen the Horus's missiles following an unpredictable course, which was duly recorded. It had seen the Horus go into overdrive and move only hundreds of miles, instead of hundreds of millions. It had seen the Horus vanish from one place and appear at another in the same combat area, launch missiles, and vanish again before it could even be ranged. The last Mekanese ship certainly carried with it the Horus's tactics and actions recorded on tape. The technicians of Mekan would set to work instantly to duplicate them. Once they were considered impossible, once they were recognized, they could be achieved. The combat efficiency of the Mekanese fleet would be increased as greatly as that of the fleet of Kandar had been, and the overwhelming superiority of numbers would again become decisive the hopeless situation of the Kandarian fleet would become a hundred times worse, and Mekanese counterintelligence would make a search for the origin of such improvements. Since Kandar was to have been attacked and occupied, it would be a place of special search. The only unsuspected source, of course, would be Talents Incorporated. For a full minute after the enemy ship's disappearance, Bohr sat rigid, his hands clenched, facing the disaster the escape of the Mekanese constituted. Sweat appeared on his forehead. Then he pressed the engine-room button and said evenly, "'Prepare for standard overdrive. Top speed possible.' He swung the ship. He lined it up with Mekan itself, which, of course, was the one place where it would be most fatal for a ship from Kandar to be discovered. Very shortly thereafter the Horus was in overdrive." Traveling in such unthinkable haste, it is paradoxic that there is much time to spare. Bors had to occupy it. He prepared a careful and detailed account of exactly how the low-speed overdrive had worked, and its effectiveness as a combat tactic. He distributed instructions and Logan's tables on the subject before leaving Glamis. He would be, of course, most bitterly blamed for having taken on a whole squadron of enemy ships, with the result that one had gotten away. It could be the most decisive of catastrophes. But he made his report with precision.
For seven successive ship days there was no event whatever on the Horus, as he drove toward Meekin. Undoubtedly, the one survivor of the enemy squadron was fleeing for Meekin, too, to report to the highest possible authority what it had seen and experienced. It would not be much, if at all, slower than the Horus. It might be faster, and might reach the solar system of Meekin before the Horus broke out there. It had every advantage but one. It had solar system drive, for use within a planetary group, and it had overdrive for use between the stars. But the Horus had an intermediate drive as well, which was faster than the enemy's slow speed and slower than the fast. Bors depended on it for the continued existence of Kandar and the fleet. As the desperately tedious ship days went by, he began to have ideas, at which he consciously scoffed, concerning Tralee. But if anything as absurd as those ideas came to be, there were a score of other planets which would have to be considered, too. He sketched out in his own mind a course of action that would be possible to follow after breakout off Meekin. It did not follow the rules for sound planning, which always assume that if things can go wrong, they will. Bors could only plan for what might be done if things went right. But he could not hope, not really. Still, he considered every possibility, however far-fetched. He came to first break out a light week short of Meekin. The yellow sun flamed dead ahead. He determined his distance from it with very great care. The Horus went back into overdrive and out again, and it was well within the system, though carefully not on the plane of its ecliptic. Then the Horus waited. She was twenty millions of miles from the planet Meekin. Bors ordered that for intervals of up to five minutes no electronic apparatus on the ship should be in operation. In those periods of electronic silence his radar swept all of space except Meekin. He had no desire to have Meekin pick up radar pulses and wonder what they came from. The rest of the system, though, he mapped. He found two meteor streams and a clump of three planetoids in a nearly circular orbit, and he spotted a ship just lifted from Meekin by its landing grid. It went out to five planetary diameters and flicked out of existence so far as radar was concerned. It had gone into overdrive and away. Another ship came around Meekin, in orbit. It reached the spot from which the first ship had vanished. It began to descend. The landing grid had locked onto it with projected force fields and was drawing it down to ground. Bors growled to himself. It was not likely that this ship was the one he'd pursued, sight unseen, since the end of the fight off Meriden. But it was a possibility. If it were true, then everything that mattered to Bors was lost forever. Then a blip appeared. It was at the most extreme limit of the radar's range. A ship had come out of overdrive near the fourth planetary orbit of this solar system. Bors and the yeoman computer operator figured its distance to six places of decimals. Bors set the microsecond timer. The Horus went into low-speed overdrive and out again. Then the electron telescope revealed a stubby, rotund cargo ship about to land on Meekin. Bors swore. It would be days before this tub reached Meekin on solar system drive. 
but it must not report that an armed vessel had inspected it in remoteness. "'We haul alongside,' said Bors angrily. "'Boarding parties, ready in the space-boats!' Another wrenching flicker into overdrive and through breakout without pause. The cargo boat was within ten miles. "'Calling cargo boat!' rasped Bors, in what would be the arrogant tones of a Mekinese naval officer hailing a mere civilian ship. "'Identify yourself!' A voice answered apologetically, "'Cargo ship, Empress, sir, bound from Laurel to Megan with frozen foods.' "'Cut your drive!' snapped Bors. "'Stand by for inspection. Muster your crews. There's a criminal trying to get ashore on Meekin. We'll check your hands. Acknowledge.' "'Yes, sir,' said the apologetic voice. "'Obeying, sir.' Bors fretted. The spaceboats left the Horace's side. One clamped onto the airlock of the rounded, bulging tramp ship. The second lifeboat hovered nearby. The first boat broke contact, and the second hooked on. The second boat broke contact. Both came back to the Horace. The screen before Bors lighted up. One of his own crewmen nodded out of it. "'All clear, sir,' said his voice briskly. "'They behave like lambs, sir. No arms. We've locked them in a cargo hold.' "'You know what to do now,' said Bors. "'Yes, sir. Off.' Ten miles away, the cargo boat swung itself about. Suddenly it was gone. It was on the way to Glamis and the fleet. Another hour of watching. Another blip. It was another cargo carrier like the first. As the other had done, it meekly permitted itself to be boarded by what it believed were mere naval ratings of the Mekinese space fleet, searching for a criminal who might be on board. Like the first ship, it was soon undeceived. Again like the first, it vanished from emptiness, and it would be heading for the fleet in its monotonous circling of Glamis. The third blip, though, was a light cruiser. The Horus appeared from nowhere close beside it, and its communicator began to scream in gibberish. It would be an official report, scrambled and taped, to be transmitted to ground on the first instant there was hope of its reception. "'Fire one,' said Bors. "'The skipper there is on his toes.' He watched bleakly as the Horus's missile arched in its impossible trajectory, as the light cruiser flung everything that could be gotten out to try to stop it, while its transmitter shrieked gibberish to the stars. There was a blinding flash of light, then nothing. "'He got out maybe fifteen seconds of transmission,' said Bors somberly which may or may not be picked up from this distance, and may or may not tell anything. He got a tape ready while he was in overdrive, with plenty of time for the job. My guess is that he'd take at least fifteen seconds to identify his ship, give her code number, her skipper, and such things. I hope so. But for minutes he was irresolute. He'd send out his own minutely detailed report back to Glamis on the second captured ship. He did not need to return to report in person. He hadn't yet sent back provisions enough for the intended voyage of the fleet. The solar system of Meekin was an especially well-stocked hunting ground for such marauders as Bors and his crew declared themselves to be, so long as word did not get to ground on Meekin. 
but it did not get down. From time to time, at intervals of a few hours, specks appeared in emptiness. Meekin monopolized the off-planet trade of its satellite world. There would be many times the space traffic here that would be found off any other planet in the Meekinese Empire. One ship got to ground unchallenged. By pure accident, it came out of overdrive within half a million miles of Meekin. To have attacked it would have been noted. But he got two more cargo ships. Then he found the Horus alongside a passenger ship, but it couldn't be allowed to ground to report that it had been stopped by an armed ship. A prize crew took it off to Glamis. Bors made a formal announcement to his crew. I think, he told them over the all-speaker circuit, that we got the ship which could have reported our action off Meriden. I'm sure we've sent four shiploads of food back to the fleet, besides the passenger ship we'd rather have missed. But there's still something to be done. To confuse Meekin and keep it busy, therefore, off Kandar's neck, we have to start trouble elsewhere. From now on, we are pirates, pure and simple. And he headed the Horus for the planet Cassus, which was another victim of the Meekinese. It was a rocky, mountainous world with many mines. Meekin depended on it for metal in vast quantities. The Horus hovered over it and sent down a sardonic challenge. One missile came up in defiance. But it was badly aimed, and Bors ignored it. Then voices called to him, sharp with excitement. He heard shots and shouting, and a voice said feverishly that rebels on Cassus, who had been fighting in the streets, had rushed a transmitter to welcome the enemies of Meekin. Bors had one light cruiser and merely a minimum crew for it. He couldn't be of much help to insurrectionists. Then he heard artillery fire over the communicator, and voices gasped that the Meekinese garrison was charging out of its highly fortified encampment. Bors sent down a missile to break the back of the counterattack. Then the communicator gave off the sound of gunfire and men in battle, and presently yells of triumph. He took the Horus away. Its arrival and involvement in the revolt was pure accident. It was no part of any thought-out plan. But he was wryly relieved when he had convinced himself that Meekin needed the products of this world too much to exterminate its population with fusion bombs. More days of travel and overdrive tedium. Bors was astounded and appalled. Interference here would only make matters worse. The Horus went on. There was a cargo ship aground on Dover, and the Horus threatened bombs, and a spaceboat went down and brought it up. That ship also went away to Glamis, where the fleet was accumulating an inconvenient number of prisoners. The fact that the capture of this ship only added to that number made Bors realize that King Humphrey would be especially disturbed about the passengers on the liner sent back from Meekin. Unless they were murdered, sooner or later they would reveal the facts about the fleet, and King Humphrey was a highly conscientious man. There was dissension even on Dover. The landing party was cheered from the edge of the spaceport. Bors could not understand. He tried to guess what was going on in the Meekinese Empire. He could not know whether or not disaster had yet struck Kandar. 
he could only hope that there were ships lurking near it, ready to use the recent technical combat improvements against any single Mekini ship that might appear, so no report would be carried back. But it seemed to him that utter and complete catastrophe was inevitable. He reflected unhappily about Tre-Lee, and wondered what the pretender, his uncle, really thought about his loosing of chemical explosive missiles against puppet government buildings there. He found himself worrying again about the truck drivers, who'd warned his men of booby traps in the supplies they delivered. He hoped they hadn't been caught. The Horus arrived at Deccan, and called down the savage message of challenge. There came a tumultuous, roaring reply. "'Captain Bors!' cried a voice from the ground exultantly. "'Land and welcome! We didn't hope you'd come here, but you're a thousand times welcome! We've smashed the garrison here, Captain! We rose days ago, and we hold the planet! We'll join you! Come to ground, sir! We can supply you!' Bors went tense all over. He'd been called by name. If he was known by name on this world, twenty light-years from Meekin and thirty-five from Kandar, then everything was lost. "'Can you send up a spaceboat?' he asked in a voice he did not recognize. "'I'd like to have your news.' It must be a trap. It was possible that there'd been revolt on Deccan. He'd found proof of rebellion elsewhere. There'd been claims of revolt on Cassus, but he hadn't been suspicious then. He'd sent down a missile to help the self-proclaimed rebels there. Now he wondered desperately if he'd been tricked there, as it was all too likely, he would be here. There'd been reported fighting on Avino. There was cheering for his men on Dover, and he might have landed there. But there were too many coincidences, far too many. He waited, fifty thousand miles high, with the ship at combat alert. He felt cold all over. Somehow, news had preceded him. It was garbled truth, but there was enough to make his spine feel like ice. He spoke over the all-speaker hookup, in a voice he could not keep steady by any effort of will. "'All hands' attention,' he said heavily. "'I just called ground. We have had a reply.' calling me by name. You will see the implication. It looks like, somehow, the Mekinese have managed to send word ahead of us. They found out that no one can stand against us. They know we have new and deadly weapons. Probably there have been orders given to lure us to ground by the pretense of a successful revolt. It would be hoped that we can be fooled to the point where we will land and our ship can be captured, undestroyed. That's the way it looks. He swallowed with difficulty. If that's so, he said after an instant, you can guess what's been done about Kandar. The Grand Fleet was assembled on Meekin. It could have gone to Kandar. He swallowed again. Then he said savagely, We'll make sure first. If the worst has happened, We'll take our fleet and head for Meekin and pour down every ounce of atomic explosive we've got. We may not be able to turn its air to poison, but if there are survivors, they won't celebrate what they did to Kandar. He clicked off. His fists clenched. 
he paced back and forth in the control room. He almost did not wait to make sure. Almost. But he had never seen a Mekinese fighting man face to face. He'd gone into exile with his uncle, when that unhappily reasonable man let Trey Lee surrender, rather than be bombed to depopulation. He'd served in the Kandarian Navy without ever managing to be in any port when a Mekinese ship was in. He'd fought in the battle off Kandar, he'd destroyed a Mekinese cruiser off Trey Lee, another in the Mekinese system itself, and a squadron off Meriden. But he had never seen a Mekinese fighting man face to face. Filled with such hatred as he felt, he meant to do so now. A spaceboat came up from the ground. The Horus trained weapons on it. Bors painstakingly arranged for its occupants to board the Horus in spacesuits, which could not conceal bombs. There were six men in the spaceboat. They came into the Horus's control room, and he saw that they were young, almost boys. When they learned that he was Captain Bors, they looked at him with shining, admiring, worshipping eyes. It could not be a trick. It could not be a trap. He was incredulous. The message from the ground was true.